both in our scripture reading and our um, last song. Uh, We're reminded of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and also the resurrection of the believer through Christ's resurrection when he returns. And I say this often, but really every Lord's Day, every time we come together to worship on a Sunday morning, it is like a little mini Easter, a little mini resurrection day in, in which we explicitly and implicitly in many ways we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Because without that, there is no hope for us. Uh, without Jesus' resurrection, this is just another form, I, I suppose, of morality for people in the world who uh, are trying to chart a course for themselves and their families. But because Christ is risen... There is life in him, and we will be risen one day too. We'll be raised one day through him. So praise God for that. Here we are again, another little mini Easter, as we gather together on the Lord's Day. If you would, please go with me in your Bibles to Genesis 10, verses 1 to 32. Yes, another genealogy. So I guess you're quite excited or not, but yes, we have today before us. Another one of these genealogies in chapter 10 of Genesis. We were last in a genealogy in chapter 5, quite a long one there. And here again, we have another long one to work through. How in the world do I teach this passage? That was my question at the beginning of the week, in the middle of the week, and at the end of the week. Still, in some ways, here with me this morning, uh, goes... Through It has gone through the entire week. How in the world do I teach this passage? I was talking with Jennifer this week, my wife, and I told her uh, that in some ways it, this text has, there's so much here in Genesis 10, uh, 1 to 32. In, so, in some ways there's just so much here that it's overwhelming. One commentator on this. I tried to read a number of commentaries, and one commentator had 40 pages alone detailing chapter 10. So there's, it's just overwhelming amount of material here uh, on the one hand. But on the other hand, you could say at least a, 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 on a superficial level, as, you, as it appears, there's just not much here. So on the one hand, there's so much here. And then on the other hand, you think in terms of theology and that which, uh, imp, uh, that which applies to the Christian life and that which in, in, infuses life into our understanding of, of God and his purposes and so forth. Uh, there, there, there just appears, in one sense, not to be that much here. It's just you know, genealogies, just a bunch of names strung together. So I think it, for those reasons, it becomes difficult in both ways, too much and not enough. One commentator, Alan Ross, says this about this passage. There are not too many satisfying ways to treat this passage in an exposition, which is very encouraging coming across that early on in the week. Uh, Absolutely. And then he goes on to say, one would certainly not wish to go name by name through the table. Such an exercise would be tedious and academic. Well, I, I will, uh, you'll be happy to know that I have taken his advice. So I, uh, I've taken his advice, a good counsel, wise counsel. Proverbs tells us the foolish man does not listen to counsel. 
So there we go. And I, so I'm not going to go through this genealogy name by name, looking at all of these names that will seem so foreign and so strange. And in fact, one thing I will point you to is if you're interested in the specific identification of each person or group that is mentioned in this genealogy, as well as where they settled geographically and how they connect to later peoples, peoples that we would even uh, think of today in the 21st century. Uh, I would recommend that you look at any study Bible, really. You can go through a Bible atlas, or, or quite frankly, you can just do some Google imaging on the table of nations, which is what this passage, chapter 10, verses 1 to 32, is. And it will give you all these, these various breakdowns of where these peoples that are mentioned in chapter 10, where they ended up. And in fact, the ESV study Bible, which I would imagine a n- number of you have, a very helpful source for the Christian to have on the shelf, of it, pretty much a good go-to for basic commentary on a passage of Scripture and all sorts of, of maps and tables and background articles, apologetic articles and so forth from leading scholars in all of the various books of, of the Bible who are evangelicals themselves who believe the Bible is actually God's Word, but who also have taken time to study it in depth. So I recommend the ESV Study Bible. But the ESV Study Bible has a great colored map of this and introduces it by, with these words. Many of the people groups mentioned in Genesis 10 can be identified with relative certainty. That is actually quite encouraging, that you have all these foreign names and you can, you can identify them. And you can identify them, uh, and I'm interrupting the ESV Study Bible here, but just let me say this. You can identify them too as you read ancient Sources like Herodotus or or others where uh, some of the ancient peoples are discussed uh, going back into ancient history. But it goes on to say, in general, the descendants of Ham settled in North Africa and the eastern Mediterranean coast. The descendants of Sham in Mesopotamia and Arabia and the descendants of Japheth in Europe and the greater area of Asia Minor. There's been all kinds of ways of figuring out how uh, did people get to uh, North and South America and, and who are the Asiatic peoples and, and how do they relate to these uh, nations and individuals mentioned in chapter 10. So I would point you to, for the details, the specific details, point you to some of those Resources. So what are we to do with this genealogy? If we're not going to go through this genealogy name by name, people by people, and break it down and, and be here until tomorrow, if that's not what we're going to do, what are we going to do with it? Well, I've entitled the sermon today, Our Ancient Ancestry. As far as ancient history is concerned, it really doesn't get any more ancient than this. Of course, We go back before the flood, but if we are thinking about a post-flood world, kind of new creation, recreation, new beginning, if we're going back to that period, this is really as ancient as it gets. So some of you think history is utterly boring. I feel sorry for you. I honestly do. Um, Some of us think history is amazing, and you could just sit and read biographies and histories and so forth uh, in your free time falling to sleep at night and waking up in the morning or whatever. Uh, You love this stuff. And so for those of us who do love ancient history and who find ourselves um, 
Moving over to the, to the Egyptian exhibits or to the ancient Near Eastern exhibits, uh, when we go to museums or the Greeks or Romans or wherever, uh, this is really the beginning of ancient history as we would understand it. This is the beginning of all of it. An account of the earliest populating of the world, and it comes to us in the form of a genealogy. So just to give you an understanding for the whole passage, the first verse says this, verse 1, These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. And I want to show you kind of what's going on here by going back a little bit in Genesis and just identifying a few passages that read very similar to this. So look at chapter 2, verse 4. This language of the generations. So chapter 2, verse 4 says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So there we go. It, it unpacks for us the creation of the world, but with a focus on God's pinnacle creation, man and woman, humanity, at the end there of chapter 2. And then look over at chapter 5, verse 1. Same language. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And we know, of course, that was the previous genealogy we looked at. It goes through Seth, uh, from Adam through Seth, all the way down to Noah. And then look at chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. And then Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And so then we come to chapter 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah. So we're getting a little bit of a structural, uh, a structural clue here to how, how the author wants to unpack for us his story. How he wants to lay out this history going all the way back to the creation. And this is just another point, kind of a new chapter. We're entering into a new chapter after the six, seven, and eight, and nine chapters that look at Noah and the flood. So these are the generations. And then look at the last verse of our passage, chapter 10, verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. <clears throat> so as I say again, this is an account of the earliest populating of the world. This is ancient, ancient history. But in tracing the lineage and spread of ancient peoples, we know that this table of nations, as I said, it has been called, is selective and not exhaustive. It doesn't, it doesn't give us every single detail. So, for example, you'll notice that when the genealogy begins in chapter 10 and it goes through the sons of Japheth in verse 2, it pulls out for special handling Gomer and Javan. These two individuals, and then it moves on beyond that. It doesn't actually go through and give you all the details of the other sons. It just pulls out some of these for special focus. And then in verse 5, we get these words. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nation. So not exhaustive. That's a very general statement saying there's more coastland peoples. Those peoples are spreading. They're out there. I'm not going to give you all the details of those folks, but that's how it happened. So that's what's going on. That's the big picture of this genealogy. So as we try to approach 
and crack open this text to understand it and apply it as Christians. What I want to do is give you five words, and you'll find these in your bulletin, if you've already looked there, five words that I think help us to deal with this genealogy in a, in a palatable way, in a way that will uh, help us to understand how it is situated and what we should take away from it. So five words. First is confirmation. Second, connection. Third, corruption. Fourth, continuity. And finally, consummation. Hopefully those words will enable us to wrap our minds around this passage of God's word. I want to reiterate for us that this too is edifying. This too is God-breathed scripture. Okay, so this genealogy is no less God's word than something glorious, as we would say, like Ephesians 1 or Romans uh, chapter 8, the very end of Romans 8, or John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. Passages like that. This too is God's word and it is meant for the comforting and the building up and the challenging and convicting of God's people. So if you will, please stand with me. And we'll go ahead and read our passage. This is God's word. Genesis 10, 1 to 32. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Rephoth, and Tagarma. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Ketim, and Dodanim. From these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. So there's Japheth. Now, verse 6. The sons of Ham. Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ramah, and Sabtica. The sons of Ramah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Must have been a saying back then. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kela, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kela. That is the great city. Egypt, or Mitzrayim, fathered Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Nephtahim, Pathrushim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, that's the Hittites, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zamorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Geza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lacia. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So that's Ham. Now verse 21. 
to Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Job is from Uz. Arpachshad fathered Shelah. By the way, that, that wasn't there. I just put that in there about Job. Those of you who aren't following along. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. That's what his name means. And his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelaf, Hazarmaveth, Jerah, Hadaram, Uzal, Dikla, Albal, Ab- Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Misha in the direction of Sephar to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. You can go ahead and be seated. If you're thinking that was tough to listen to, you didn't have to read it. So, All right, well, let's pray to the Lord and ask for his blessing on this time in his word. Father, thank you for your goodness towards us in Jesus. Thank you that we can come and open up a passage like this in the Bible and we can see the glory of your redemptive plan, and we can see the glory of Christ even here. Father, we thank you that all of Scripture is inspired, and all of Scripture is about Christ. Father, we praise you that we get the privilege to be here this morning to sit under your word. Thank you, Father, for this grace. We recognize that we could be among a people who have not heard of Christ. We could be among a people who have, do not have your word in their own language. And Father, we pray for those peoples. We pray that you would send us, even some of us here, to those people. That they might bow to you as their God. That they might trust in the finished work of Christ for their salvation. That, that, might, that they might be renewed and remade in the heart And that they might receive eternal life with you. Father, we pray that you would use us as a people, as a local church, to reach the nations. Those whom you have chosen before the foundation of the world. Those whom you will call and are calling to yourself. Would you use us to bring the gospel to the nations, we pray. Father, we thank you that you are a sovereign God. And even in a passage like this, we see your sovereignty over the world which you made, over human beings whom you made in your image. And God, we're just reminded that you're sovereign over our lives. And so we come this morning as we sit under your word and as we ask you, Abba, Father, speak to us. We trust that you govern our lives with your good power. And Father, we pray we would trust that more, that in the midst of What seems like darkness, what seems like hopelessness, what seems like 
unending strife or struggle or whatever else we face, Father, that we would hope in Jesus, that we would hope in you, the one true God, and that we would rejoice despite the struggles we face. Father, would we do this not because our life sometimes is good and sometimes not so good, but would we do this because you are always good and your purposes for us lead to our good and you can be trusted. So, Father, we pray that you would minister to each of us this morning. God, not a single person in this room knows how you want to minister to each person. But, God, we know that you are sovereign over hearts. You know us inside and out. And so we pray that you would take this seemingly difficult and maybe wooden and and maybe just unimportant or maybe insignificant passage that some might come to and say, I'm going to skip over that. But Father, we pray you would even take this this morning and that you would receive glory by using a text like this to change hearts. We pray that you would do this among us today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have confirmation, connection, corruption, continuity, and consummation. The first of these we're going to look at this morning is confirmation. One of the themes that we have tried to trace repeatedly in our study of Genesis so far is the character of God. I want to take every opportunity that I can, as I think we all should, for us to see how the text is grabbing us by the hand and leading us to see and trust this glorious God. We know that that was Moses' reason for writing. Let's not get distracted and, and get distracted with how it all went down and the history of the nations and all of the little details, all of which are important, so much so that we become fascinated, we begin to speculate, and we begin to just get wrapped up in a story, much like we would a John Grisham novel on the beach or whatever. We just get lost in the story and we forget that this text is about God. It's about his glory. It's about his faithfulness. It's about his trustworthiness. And Moses is, in a sense, as he writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is, in a sense, pleading with Israel to trust their God. Go into the land under Joshua's leadership. Obey God. Don't worship idols. Don't worship these dead gods, these non-existent deities. Worship the Lord. He's good. He's faithful. He'll take care of you. He's done all these things to precede where you are at now, to prepare you for where you're at now. Trust him. That's the reason Moses wrote this. That's the reason he wrote it for Israel to read. And that's the reason he wrote it for Four Corners to read. So that we would see and trust in God. So I hope that's happening. I hope that's happening for you as we're going through Genesis. Maybe some of these things are interesting to you and and maybe you've gone and read a lot of things. Are you trusting God? Are you looking to him in your life? Because that's the effect. That's the effect of this book. So when we come to this genealogy, there is one very important observation that we cannot fail to make. And it might on one level seem too basic to make, but we need to make this observation. And it's this. 
This genealogy is in itself a confirmation of God's blessing. It's, it, it houses a little confirmation. It is itself confirming something. It is confirming God's blessing, God's promise, and God's faithfulness. Remember when we read back in, remember what we read back in chapter 9, verse 1. Go there with me if you will. Look at what it says in chapter 9, verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The blessing is the means by which procreation happens. We saw that in Genesis 1. As God blessed the creatures and they were going to go and procreate, they were going to go and reproduce and populate the earth. And we saw that in chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, where God said to them, he blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So we know that reproduction, procreation, Filling the earth is, is, happens by means of God's blessing. And so when we come to a genealogy like this with all these crazy names, we are getting a confirmation of the truth of God's blessing. The reality of God's blessing being put on display. So when we come to chapter 10, verse 1, and we read these words, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Sham, Ham, and Japheth. And then here it is, sons were born to them after the flood. Once again, telling us that God's blessing is in effect, reminding us of this, that no matter where you go in the earth, no matter what corner of the globe you find yourself in, no matter what kind of wickedness, human wickedness manifests itself, there you still have the blessing of God. There you still have the common grace of God. It's the only reason that leaves grow on trees. It's the only reason that babies are born to pagans. It's the only reason that any of us can enjoy anything is because of this God who has blessed humanity. So what else does this tell us? Just this very basic observation that the genealogy is a confirmation of God's blessing. Well, it tells us that God's speaking is effective. And what I mean by that is that when God speaks, things happen. We saw that in Genesis 1. And God said, let there be light. And God said, and God said, and God said. And every time God spoke, something happened. And that reminds us that every time we come to God's word, every time we come to his word inspired that we find in the Bible, it's effective. It's powerful. There is a theology of God's effective speech running throughout all of the Bible. And it's the reason that the Son of God is called the Word of God through whom he made all things. God's Word always accomplishes what it sets out to do. And so we get Jesus on the cross, the Word of God incarnate, saying, It is finished. The Word did it. And every time we open up the Bible, God speaks. And if we listen, God's word will be effective in our lives. We come here this morning and we got different things that we're struggling with. We've got some issues maybe in, uh, in our own hearts that we've identified even recently. Issues in our marriage, issues with our children, issues with people in this church maybe. And we're wondering how. How does this change? Is there any hope? There is hope through God's word. God's word 
is a powerful tool in the hand of God's Spirit. So we know that God's speaking is effective. He speaks a blessing and it happens. That's my point. We know that God's speaking is true. He can be trusted. We see that here as well. But there's another thing I think this confirmation of God's blessing tells us. It tells us that God's blessing to us in Christ, God's blessings to us in Christ are being and will be confirmed. So I want, to, I want to bring you back to a passage probably that you have read many times. Maybe you've memorized it. It's in Ephesians, and it's Ephesians 1, verse 3. I love this verse, but this is what Paul says there. He just breaks out in praise of God. He says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what I want to draw your attention to. Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So let me say this again. As we see God's blessing being confirmed here in this genealogy, it tells us that God's blessings to us in Christ are being and will be confirmed. Just as sure as God's blessing resulted in the procreation of people and the spreading of these peoples in the world, God's blessing to us in Christ in the heavenly places will bear powerful fruit in our lives and ultimately eternal life. The Holy Spirit is the seal There's a fly up here that is joining me. Uh, God's Holy Spirit seals us and ensures for us that this will happen. So that's the first thing I want you to see. Confirmation. We can't miss that. Confirmation of God's blessing. Secondly, we have connection. Connection. Before, Before moving to Noonan... Jennifer and I had lived in the city of Edinburgh, Scotland, as I've mentioned before. We lived there for four years. And one of the advantages of living in a city is that you get to meet a lot of different kinds of people. People from all over the world. You see such a diversity of peoples and cultures from all over the place. And that's a very neat and exciting experience. We got to see this up close and personal through our church. Our church was a city-centered church, and it had a number of of international people. We were actually considered internationals, too, because we were there in the U.K., but there were people from all over the world. And one of these international ministry meetings, I got to do what they call there a gospel talk. Basically, it was five to ten minutes, and just sharing the gospel. People were encouraged to bring their friends uh, from the university or wherever, and just got to share the gospel. And at that event, all of the peoples from all over the world brought their food, the food that would be representative of their country, of their nation. And of course, as we all know, Indian food is the best food on the planet. So that was my personal favorite. But there's all kinds of foods, things that we wouldn't even conceive of when we go to uh, an event like that or when we're around so many different kinds of people. There's so much diversity in the world, in appearance, culture, food, the way that people interact, cultural norms, very diverse throughout the world. But in the midst of all of this diversity, Genesis 10 comes along and reminds us that we all have the same source. This is very important. We all go back to Noah and his three sons, and through Noah and his three sons, we all go back to Adam. 
And so in the last verse of chapter 10, we get, These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these. Do you see that? From these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. The whole earth populated from these three guys and their wives. In Acts chapter 17, clarification, Acts chapter 17, verse 26, we also get this bit about Adam. Acts 17, 26, and he made from one man, from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. All people go back to one man, Adam. Through Shem, Ham, and Japheth, through Noah, all people going back to Adam. And notice what it says there. Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, he's talking to Athenians. These are some of the most glorious people that we would look to in the history of the world. I mean, they're they're world-renowned, and they were then. And they knew it, and they thought they were great. These were philosopher types. These were types that came from the the great classical period of of ancient Greece. Great builders like Pericles and others and great monuments. Great works of history and literature and philosophy. And what Paul is saying implicitly there is, your little plot of land, your little nation, determined by God, not the God you worship, by the way, but the God who is sovereign over all peoples and who determines where they go and where they settle and win. And so we see that in the midst of all this diversity, back to one man through one family. So this genealogy tells us that all human beings are really part of one big family. We're all united. We're all connected. Most of us still remember Maybe you weren't uh, here in Noonan at that time, but most of us remember the neo-Nazi rally that took place in Noonan, right next to where we used to meet, 18th Savannah Street there in Greenville Park. Met, uh, they met there for a rally back in April. And there are so many ways of responding to racism. So many things that you could say, but one is to simply remember, just, just one, is to simply remember that in one respect, there really is no such thing as different races. In one respect, it doesn't even exist. We all go back to one race of people through Noah and his sons. That's the bottom line. We all are part of one family. So I want you to see that these first two points, confirmation and connection, really help us, even as before we've gotten into the details of this genealogy, they help us in our love of God and neighbor. Do you see that? That as God's blessing is confirmed, encapsulated in this genealogy, it draws our minds to remember that God does not lie, that God keeps his promises, that God's word is effective, and we give him glory, and we love him, and we delight in him as our God. And then we see that all of human beings whom God has made in his image go back to one source. And so we are drawn, as always in Scripture, to love of God and love of neighbor. But now I want to take a look at 
a little bit more of the details in this passage. And that leads to our third point in your bulletin there, and that is corruption. If there is one thing we've seen a lot of in Genesis so far, it is sin. We've seen a lot of that. We see a lot of that today. We see a lot of that in our own hearts, our own behavior. But so far in Genesis, if one thing is really clear, it is that sin is a reality. Not just a socioeconomic marginalization that leads to bad behavior. Not just psychological issues that need to be worked through. Sin, corrupt hearts, hearts that do not love God and neighbor. Adam and Eve disobeying God. Cain killing Abel. Lamech's boastful violence, the, the depravity of human beings at the time of the flood, and then even after the flood. It's amazing. Sin, 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 sin. Then you have the flood. You think you're going to be okay. And then last week we saw Noah passed out naked in his tent, drunk. And then we have Ham, his son, dishonoring his father. And when you compare his behavior with that of his brother's, his behavior becomes that much more grievous and despicable. When you see the extent to which they tried to cover their father, Ham does the utter opposite, which shows the wickedness that we see in his behavior. So lots and lots and lots of sin so far. But maybe you are tempted to think that the whole sin theme is on Paul's at this point. This is a genealogy. It's not dripping with sin. It's just a bunch of names. It's a genealogy. This is pretty neutral territory, right? We're getting a little break, a little breather from corruption and sin and depravity and so forth at this point. Well, that's not the case. When we dig a little deeper into this text, we see human corruption still very much at work. And we see this corruption in a number of ways. And probably most strikingly, it comes through this figure, Nimrod. So let me draw you to this guy, Nimrod, in verses 8 to 12. Let's read those verses. Verses 8 to 12. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kela, and Razan between Nineveh and Kela. That is the great city. So what do we do with this guy, Nimrod? Well, at first glance, there doesn't appear to be a problem with Nimrod. There's nothing really explicit here. It doesn't say he went on a killing rampage. It doesn't say he was an angry man. It doesn't say that he was wicked. It doesn't say that he cursed God or disobeyed God, at least on the surface. We don't see that here on the surface. He's a strong man and a hunter. Commendable qualities, right? Strong man and a hunter. And it even says before the Lord. Maybe you're tempted there to think, okay, so he walks before God. Maybe you read into that some Noah kind of language. You know, he walked with God. Nimrod is before the Lord. Lord's looking down on Nimrod with with great commendation, perhaps. So on the surface, we might just 
see this as neutral territory or really even as somewhat positive territory. But Nimrod evokes for us a number of things that are not positive in the context of Genesis 10. I want to point out three of these to you. Three things that if we dig a little deeper, we see that this is not meant to be a positive picture. So the first of these is that his city building brings to mind Cain. There's nothing evil about building a city. Of course not. There's nothing evil about human beings being, uh, human beings being urban. There's nothing inherently negative or evil about that. But by referencing the fact that he builds cities, the reader of Genesis, the mind of the reader is brought back to Cain. And look at chapter 4, verse 17. It's the mention that we have of city building. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Goes from the presence of the Lord and builds a city. And then we know his descendants are cultivated people. They, they cultivate all kinds of culture and art and so forth that we have uh, listed there in chapter 4. And so we know that this, this city building on the surface does not seem like a bad thing. But it evokes for the reader uh, attention to Cain. But that's just one detail. There's a second that I want you to see. The description of mighty man brings to mind the mighty men on the earth at the time of the flood. So look at chapter 6, verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. I am most certainly not going to revisit that difficult passage right now, but I am just going to point out on a very basic level, that it, that's the last time we got this language of the mighty men. And here we're introduced again to another mighty man. And that brings the reader back to the pre-flood world, the depravity of the pre-flood world. And these mighty men, we know that there in chapter 6, mighty men is associated with violence. Because as we go on to read in chapter 6, we know that what was, what was great on the earth at that time was violence. That people were murdering and killing each other. And so it's impossible to read mighty men next to violence and not see a kind of tyranny, a kind of corruption, a kind of oppressive empire building. And I think that is what we have here with Nimrod. And probably most importantly, this is the most important detail, this is the third one, is that he is personally associated with establishing the city of Babel. That's the most obvious. And you have to go on and read the next narrative about the Tower of Babel, which we'll get to soon. But you'll have to go on and read that narrative in order to understand why that matters. Why that's not a positive thing. Why that is negative. It is Nimrod who is associated with this building project at Babel. He's kind of the head guy. He's the leader. This is the, he's the leader of this empire. And also... Last little detail, Nimrod's name means we shall rebel. <laughs> That's pretty bad. Uh, his, his name itself anticipates what we're going to have going on with the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is one big rebellion against God. And we'll talk about that next week. But that, that itself shows a godlessness. So we got this city building reminding us of 
Cain, we got mighty man reminding us of pre-flood depravity. And then we got here, he's the builder of the Tower of Babel, this guy who's named We Shall Rebel. We also are being prepared for the Tower of Babel when we get to verse 25. Look at verse 25 of our genealogy. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. What's that talking about? In the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. Well, it's talking about the results of the Tower of Babel. And that tells us that what we need to really do to understand this chronologically is that the Tower of Babel chronologically really goes before the genealogy. Let me explain what I mean by that. As you come to the genealogy and you're reading how the nations of the earth are spreading and they're according to their languages and so forth, you're meant to understand this as post-Tower of Babel because we know that all the peoples had the same language. Whatever that language was, all the peoples of the earth had the same language prior to the Tower of Babel. And it was at the Tower of Babel in the time of Peleg when the earth is divided. And that means that God confuses the languages of the world. I mean, he confuses the languages of the people and he scatters them all over the world. And that is the origin of different languages. And we find that here being pointed to with Peleg when the earth was divided. So one final note on this point of corruption is that you cannot read this table of nations without thinking of Paul's description of the nations in Romans 1. Romans chapters 1 to 3 are basically Paul's attempt to put before every reader the need for a savior. When you read the first three chapters of Romans, the first part of it, you get Paul just blasting the nations. And here he has in view all the peoples of the world because they're all idol-worshiping pagans. They don't worship the one true God. He blasts them. And I won't read Romans chapter 1, 19 to 32 right now, but go and read it talks about how they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images of mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. How they are given over to homosexual lusts and how they're given over to depravity of various kinds. Foolishness and debauchery and cruelty and all of these things mentioned there at the end of chapter 1. Of Romans. And so you cannot read this table of nations without being reminded that this is really where all of that began. As Paul's describing in Romans 1 what's going on, Genesis 10 tells us this is how that happened. This is why everywhere you look in the world you see this depravity among the peoples of the world. So human corruption continues, but so does the path to the Savior. And that leads to our fourth point, which is continuity. So we see corruption, but now I want you to see continuity. Very, very important. A key passage in Genesis and in the whole Bible, for that matter, is one that I've cited very often in this series, and that is chapter 3, verse 15. And it says this, I will put enmity. This is God speaking to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, 
the offspring or the seed, in case you're wondering, what's he mean with all this seed stuff? Seed and offspring, same thing. I will put enmity between your offspring. This is God talking to the devil who took the form of a serpent. I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring, her seed. Her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this really sets us, as we read the Bible, as we become, as we become Bible readers, this sets up the, the stage for all of the history of God's people, all the history of the world, that everything after that is a search for the he, a search for the one who is going to defeat Satan, who's going to crush the head of the serpent. And so the reader of these genealogies is looking for the he, or at the very least, is tracing the line that will lead to him. This is what we got back in chapter 5 when we looked at Seth's line. We traced the line of Adam through Seth to Noah. And now in chapter 10, here we are, another genealogy, and we see that this continues. And many commentators have pointed out that the reason Sham's line is listed last is because it is the elect line, the chosen line. So what Moses is doing is he's saying, okay, here's Japheth, blessed by God, people, human beings, and there's Ham, still generally blessed by God, human beings. Remember Ham, Sham, and Japheth are blessed. And then here's Sham. And all of a sudden you're meant to to focus on this particular person and his offspring. This is the chosen line. And there are two key figures mentioned here in this line. The first is Eber. Look at verse 21. Chapter 10, verse 21. Eber. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. And then it goes on to mention those. But when it introduces Shem, it also introduces this guy named Eber. And you're wondering, what, what's, I've, never, I've never heard of Eber. He's not part of my biblical vocabulary. He's not one of those guys. If you ask me, list all the people you could think of in the Bible, you would not probably write down Eber. Haven't thought a lot about him. But this is where we get the name Hebrews from Eber. So Abraham later will be called Abram the Hebrew. In other words, Abram the descendant of Eber. So that's one key figure. The other key figure is Peleg. Eber has two sons, Joktan and Peleg, verse 25. Joktan's line leads to Babel. And that's one thing that's very interesting about Sham. So you get, you get Japheth out of the way. You get Ham out of the way. And then you go through Sham. But guess what? Once you get to Eber, there's two lines that break off of Sham. One of those lines is through Peleg. And one of those lines is through Joktan. Joktan's line leads to Babel. And it is Peleg's line that gets, picked, that gets picked up after the story of the Tower of Babel and takes us forward all the way to Abram. So we don't only have, this is my point if I'm losing you, which I'm sure I am. If, if, if my point is this, it's not just that the focus is Sham, but the focus is within Sham, this line that goes through Peleg. To Abraham as we get to him later. God's plan to send a redeemer continues. He is sovereign over the nations and his sovereignty is ensuring the preservation of the line to the seed. 
Isn't it amazing to see God doing this? This is something that we should see in the genealogy. Is that in the midst of all these nations moving around and the nimrods of the world rising up to create empires and to oppress other people in the midst of all of this, we have God sovereignly preparing the way for Christ. He is sovereignly overseeing history so as to make sure that people are born that will lead to Abraham. And then from Abraham, as we see in Matthew 1, all the way to Christ. The genealogies should bring us to a state of worship. Because they tell us of our sovereign God, who sent his Savior, sent our Savior to save us. And nothing, nothing could stop it. Nothing. Another note that I want to make here is that it is the focus on this line that governs the attention given to the various nations. So I don't know if you read through this. Maybe you haven't asked this question. Maybe you didn't notice it. But as we were reading through, one of the things you would have picked up on is that the description of Japheth's descendants is very short. You see that at the very beginning. And then the description of Ham's descendants is very long. There's all these verses about Ham and not so many verses about Japheth. Why is that? Well, the reason is that the author is focusing on those nations that have to do with Israel. The focus of this genealogy is Israel. The focus of this genealogy is the line. And what we know historically is that the descendants of Japheth are the ones, these are the Indo-European peoples. These peoples moved far north, they moved west and east out into India. These are not the people who are in the purview of Israel. It is the descendants of Ham primarily, whom Israel is constantly coming up against. So for example, among the descendants of Ham, we have Egypt, who enslaves Israel. We have Babylon, Babylon who will ultimately destroy the temple and destroy Israel. And we have the Canaanites. We learned last week, these are the people who will occupy the land that belongs to God's people. So we've looked at the confirmation of God's blessing, the connection of all people, the corruption in preparation for the Tower of Babel, and the continuity of the line. But there's one last thing as we finish, just one more thing that I want you to see before we leave today, and that is consummation. What do I mean by that? As a Christian, it is difficult to read this description of the birth and dispersion of various nations and peoples at the beginning of the human story without seeing the completion of human history. In other words, as you read chapter 10, you are seeing kind of the beginnings of human history, if you will. After the flood. This is the beginning of ancient history. It's hard to read this in chapter 10 without the mind of the Christian going to the end of human history, the completion of human history, the consummation of all things. And what do we find? When we go to the consummation of all things, this is what we read Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 to 10. After this, I looked. And behold, praise God for this. Look at this picture. A great multitude that no one could number. Let me just say this. My son frequently asked me, he just started kindergarten, he frequently asked me, Daddy, what is the, what is the biggest number? And I don't know how to answer that question. The biggest number, I guess, that we have any conception of is some kind of trillion, or a zillion, 
or whatever. I don't know how to answer that question. But what we know is that there will come a time when there will be something innumerable. We won't be able to give it any illion whatsoever. And it's here, a multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, from every nation that comes from all these that we just read, that exists today, all nations standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the amazing thing, is that one day, all of, that, all of those diverse nations worshiping idols that we find in Romans 1, that picture will be utterly, uh, utterly reversed. And that all the nations of the, of the world will gather around the throne of God and worship his Christ. Amen. The Lamb of God who was slain to purchase people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. No Christian can read Genesis 10, without thinking of Revelation 7. So how is it that we get at the beginning of the story, this mass of diverse and corrupt nations, but at the end of the story, praise God, the God of history, at the end of the story, we get all these nations worshiping the lamb around the throne. How is that? How is it you go from from what we read in Genesis 10 to what we read in Revelation 7? And the link, really is what we'll see in Genesis 12. Verse 3, if you'll look there with me, that's where we're headed. Genesis 12, verse 3, this is God speaking to Abram. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here it is, those beautiful words that make Revelation 7 a reality. Stay with me. Here's what it says. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And here's what I want to leave you with this morning. The seed of the woman is the seed of Abraham. That's what I've been getting at. The seed of Eve, the offspring of Eve, is the seed of Abraham who came through Shem, who came through Seth, came through Adam and Eve. And this seed is the one who will bring blessing to all the families of the earth. It is through him that the nations of the earth will one day be reconciled to one another and to their creator king. It doesn't matter who sits in the Oval Office at the end of the day. And it doesn't matter who rules, leads the countries of the earth. There will not be peace on earth until Yeshua reigns on the earth. And when Christ returns and reigns upon the earth, people from nations all over the world will together love one another, get along and not fight. And together we will exalt God so that as the prophet says, the knowledge of the glory of God will fill the earth. That's where Genesis 10 is headed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your story. It is your story. You are the God over history. 
You are sovereign even today. You are sovereign over our nation, and we pray for our nation, yet we recognize that it is, as Augustine would say, still part of the city of man. Father, we recognize that those who belong to the city of God are pilgrims in this world. We are strangers. We do not have a homeland here. In the ultimate sense, we look forward to a heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, from you, our King and our God through Christ, your Son. We thank you, Father, that all the nations of the world, though warring now, though standing up against one another now in racist hatred, will one day together worship you and love one another for all eternity. Father, we thank you for your story. We praise you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.